All right, so uh, this morning uh, is going, we're going to pick back up our, uh, the second half of our study on marriage. Uh, it's kind of been one in a long line of sermons of exploring uh, God's design, right? We've, we've looked at things like what it means to be created. We've looked at what it means to be created with genders. And then we dove into this idea of what it means to be married. Uh, and last week we uh, looked at the idea of what it means to be a wife, loosely. And this morning, we're going to address the idea of husband. Uh, and we're looking at the text of Ephesians 5. Uh, but if you remember, we, we predicated this entire, this two-week deal on marriage with this question, what if being married isn't the goal? What if marriage isn't about you? What if marriage isn't about you being a husband, you being a wife? What if marriage isn't even about having a, a beautiful little house, the perfect family. What if that's not the goal? What if that's not the ultimate goal? And as we see in Ephesians chapter 5, that's exactly what Paul tells us. Paul will tell us that simply being married, that isn't just the goal. That's not what it's all about. It's about something much bigger than ourselves. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 32, we read this, and as Paul, we read this last week as well, but Paul writes this, after this whole several verses on marriage, Paul writes, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. You see, we established this last week that the whole point of marriage is to be a picture of the gospel. That's the whole point of it. It's not about just being a good wife, not about being a husband. It's about proclaiming Jesus with our very lives. It's by proclaiming Jesus as wives and Jesus as husbands. Last week we looked at verses, it was verses 22 through 24, and this idea of submission. What it, when Paul talks about a wife submitting to her hum, husband, and we swam around in the idea of what it means for us to submit to Jesus what it looks like for the Christian to submit to Jesus, the proper response to the gospel, and then that displayed through a wife's submission to her husband. And now this morning, we're going to read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 33. Uh, and I'll say this as I begin, that uh, wives, uh, you kind of have it easy with the position you have to live up to. Uh, if you read in Ephesians 25, 22-24, you just have to represent the way the church interacts with Jesus, the way the church submits to Christ, which might sound kind of difficult. Men, this morning, these texts will make you quiver with, the, uh, with the, the bar that has been set for us. The way in which we're to interact with our wives is set extremely high. So Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 25. Husbands, Love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church 
and because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to the Christ, that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Uh, what a bar that is set for every husband in this room this morning. I love that Paul starts. He doesn't just say, husband, love your wife, and leave it in a kind of ambiguous gray kind of area. He says, no, here's how you're going to love your wife. When I tell you to love your wife, your example of loving your wife is Jesus. Anybody feel a twinge there? A little, a little kind of coldness in your spine that you say, wow. Then the moment you put the ring on that finger and said, I do. I'm your husband. This is the role that you have walked into. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5. But again, if it isn't just about being married, if it's picturing something much bigger, what does this text show us about the gospel? That's what I want to see. As we walk through this, I want to pull out themes to see what this tells us about Christ and us as Christians, and then what this tells us as Christian husbands. Are you with me? What this tells us about Jesus and his church, and then what that presents for us to live up to as husbands. Does that sound good? Dave, you with me? Sound good? All right, let's do this. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Big word, big use. He says, Husband, love your wife. Remember last week we introduced the, the word uh, submit. And we talked about how that word kind of has some really bad connotations. We kind of quiver a little bit. But the biblical definition was something different than culture presents. And I think the same with love. Right? He doesn't just say, husband, uh, love your wife. He doesn't just leave it to some cushy, hallmark movie kind of love. Rather, he used a very specific word. He says, husbands, agape your wives. That's the word used here, agape. And we've, I don't want to do a word study on this word agape, but here's something fascinating about this word, love, this agape. It means a discriminating affection. It means a prioritizing. It means a choosing of one over another. It means of, of giving one preference over another. Husbands, give your wife preference. Choose your wife. I love that he says that. And just like Jesus did the church. So he says, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ agape the church, as Christ set his affections on us before the foundation of the world, as Christ chose those who would be his out of the world, as opposed to some, love your wife the same way. Choose your wife, just as Jesus chose you. That's what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5. And he demonstrates how Jesus did that for the church. He says Christ loved the church. He agaped the church. He showed this discriminating affection for the church. And he writes this, and he gave himself up for her. I love that bar set for us, man. He says Jesus chose those who would be his, that is affection on his children, chose who would be his children, and demonstrated his love by giving himself up. That word give is very strong, very powerful. 
It means to abandon oneself. And we know the story of the gospel, right? We know when it said that Jesus gave himself up, it didn't just mean that Jesus, eh, to give up a little bit. No, he gave up his life, right? He gave himself up for her to the point of death. That's the way the Lord Jesus loves his church. And husbands, here's what I think this means for us this morning. When Paul writes, husbands, love your wives, agape your wives, I think on that one hand, it means to choose your wife. You can say, okay, that sounds kind of, what does that mean? Choose your wife. That means your wife is more important than girls on the internet. That's what that means. That means your wife is more important than your little extra couple hours at work to get 50 extra dollars. That means you choose your wife. She is your priority. She becomes the priority. Not above God, not above that, but just a priority in your life that says, I want to I make sure you're okay. I care for you. I choose you over all the other trappings of this world. I choose you. Husbands, that's what that means. And then when Paul writes how Jesus gave himself up for her church, and he tells husbands to love their wives the same way, I don't think he's just referring to husbands dying for your wife in the ultimate sense. Like, yes, I would say, okay, if a guy comes in your house with a gun, dive in front, take the bullet. That's great. Be John Wayne. That's cool. But it's something much bigger. I think when Paul says that Jesus gave himself up for the church, and when he calls husbands to give themselves up for their wives, I think it means a thousand tiny daily deaths. A thousand tiny daily deaths. That means you roll in the driveway and you've had a miserable day at work. You're exhausted. You're tired. You want to sit on the couch in your underwear and you want to do nothing. Paul says, you die to that. You go in the house. You see dishes. You do them. You see that dinner needs to be cooked. You do them. You see that your wife has had a bad day. You sit on the couch. You rub her feet. That's what it means. It means you die to yourself. You die to yourself. You die for her. You give yourself up for her, husbands. That's the image set. A thousand tiny daily deaths that say, you over me, you over me. How can I serve you? How can I serve you? And I think this gets to a point, I think one of the worst marriage advices, a piece of advice you could ever have One of the worst pieces of advice you could ever give any relationship, and we all know it, it's a mantra, that relationships are give and take. That's dumb. It's dumb. It doesn't work in marriage. Husbands, relationships is all give. It is give. You become a dad, it is all give. Let me tell you, toddlers don't give you anything, but boogers and puke and poop And you give, and you give, and you give, and you give yourself for your wife. You don't give expecting to take. You give. You serve. That's your purpose. That's what you're there for. To love her, care for her, give her priority, and you give. And imagine how great a relationship would be if both did that, right? Imagine if both went into it saying, I'm going to give. If I said I'm going to give, the wife said she's going to give, it's going to be great. It's not give and take. It's all give. Give yourself for your wife as Jesus gave himself for the church. Then Paul writes verse 26. 
kind of the reasoning behind this agape love and this giving of himself for the church that Jesus did. Verse 26 and 27, he writes, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. There's a couple things in here I want to tease out of this text, but the first being this. Notice that he says the reason he gave him, Jesus gave himself for the church, the reason that he agapes the church, verse 26, that he might sanctify her. Big Christian word. At the base of it, here's what it means. It means this idea to seek the ultimate good and the betterment of the individual. Jesus said, I've come to change them. I've come to make them holy. I've come to heal them. I've come to take away their sinfulness. And Paul uses that as an example of the way that husbands should love their wives. And here's what I think that means. I mean, I think it means this, husbands, that with this question, you should ask yourself this question, is your wife made better because of you? Jesus did nothing but seek the ultimate good for his people, namely himself. Gives us his ultimate good. That's what Romans 8 talks about, when all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, right? So it's talking about our ultimate good. Jesus has our ultimate good in mind. The question then becomes, husbands, do we have the ultimate good of our wives in mind? That's an interesting thought. Is my spouse made better? Is Kirsten made better because of me? Is she growing in the ways of grace and truth? Peter, is, is Leah getting closer to Jesus? Is she healing through being married to you? That's the question. That's what comes out of this. Do we seek the betterment of our wife? As a testimony to the gospel of Jesus, as we've received from Jesus, husbands, do we treat our wives that way? Do we seek their ultimate good? But catch this. Verse 26, he says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the what? I'll read it again. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Here's a little theological part, a little theological thing that comes out of Ephesians chapter 5. There is no Christian life. There is no Christian growth. There is no sanctification apart from the Word of God. There's no growth apart from the Word of God. And, I, and, I, and I'll say this. I, I, I've struggled with this, and I'll just come out and say it. I think it's a shame the state of biblical literacy amongst the people of God. We love to read books about God. We love to read books about the Bible. We love to sing songs about God. But when it comes to the Word of God, this is the agent by which we are sanctified and changed. What a thought that Jesus, that Paul writes here, that Jesus cleanses his bride, his church, by the washing of water with the Word. 
And it brings to mind this idea of sanctification as a painful process. So it means this, that the Scripture, I think it's crazy that we spend the majority of our time going to God's Word to be comforted. Right? We spend the majority of our time going to God's Word to say, okay, make me feel better about myself. I need a little bit of a, you know, 5,000-year-old Oprah Winfrey. That's what I need right now. I need some comfort for me. That's not the Bible's primary role. The Bible's primary role is to confront and inflict, to drive us to repentance, to show us God and where we don't add up in our need of Him. Scripture is so important. We've just been going through Nehemiah Wednesday nights at Bible study, and if you want to see this kind of played out, Nehemiah chapter 8 and Nehemiah chapter 9 are two fascinating chapters in the Bible. Probably two of my favorite now, after after swimming around in it and studying it for a few months. In Nehemiah chapter 8, the people of God finally arrive back in Jerusalem. Things are happening. Things are good. They recover the word of God. The people long to hear the word of God. They hear it proclaimed for like six hours. Six hours. You know, Bible apps will say, oh, you can read this passage in two minutes to get around your busy life. And that's good enough. They, They hung out for six hours. And then Nehemiah chapter 9, it's beautiful. The people repent. They fall apart. They, they weep. In fact, some of the people, I tell them, hey, don't cry. Like, relax. Calm, calm down. But the Word of God struck them. Don't ever underestimate the power of the Word of God. There is no Christian growth. There's no Panton church. Let me wade out into that. There's no Panton church apart from this. Right, Eric? There's there's nothing apart. Apart from this, revealing the Lord God through Jesus to us, what are we? The Word of God. Paul writes, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, that we are washed with the Word. Verse 27, so he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless. And again, husbands seek the betterment of your wife. That's why you're married to her. That's what you're there to lead her to do. Then verse 28. Paul uses this word again. He says, in the same way. Those are are tough words. As you read this, don't miss that. That The standard set for us as husbands is Jesus. All right? The standard set for us is Jesus, verse 28, in the same way. Verse 28, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Oneness with Christ. We're the body of Christ. That Christ loves us as he loves himself because we're members of him. I think that's a bit of what Paul means when he says it's a profound mystery. I don't have enough time to talk about the intricacies of what it means to be one with Christ on a lifetime, let alone 10 minutes. But here's what I think it means for us as husbands this morning. You're no longer an individual. 
You're no longer an individual. When you get married, you're not two individuals after you say, I do. You become one. It's profound. You become a new person. It doesn't mean that you don't, you don't have your little individual things you like to do. It doesn't mean that you lose your personhood as a husband or as a wife, but it means you become this one flesh intricately connected to the, under, to the other individual, which, by the way, is the framework for sexuality. We'll get to that in a few weeks. It's a beautiful picture of oneness. You are one. And here's a thought. Stop acting like you're single. I think a lot of marriage troubles, I find this, Kirsten and I, we were just talking about this yesterday on the couch. One of my biggest struggles with being married is I want to hold on to this little bit of me that pretends I'm still single, meaning I have me time. I'm going to do the things I did when I was single, maybe for an hour or two a day, and then I'll come and be dad and husband. But I want to act a little bit like I'm single. Paul's like, that's foolish. You're not single. You're married. Act married. Your priorities are different. It's not about you. It's not about give and take. It's about give. It's about serving as you would care for yourself. There's a thought. If Kirsten was treated the way that I treat myself, she would just be decked in gold and comfortable all the time. what What a phrase! To love someone as you love yourself. There's a thought, men. When you come home from work, when you're tired, whatever, whenever you walk into the house, think of that for a moment and say, everything that I want for myself, I'm going to do for her. Vicki, you can't look at Frank. I saw that elbow. <laughs> That's not fair. I got your back, Frank. No, but, but seriously, when you come home, Frank, on that new beautiful concrete pad on that addition, and you're standing there looking out at your mighty empire in Ferrisburg, ask yourself that question. Ask you that thought. Everything I want to do for myself right now, I'm going to do for her. What a beautiful thought that is. What a beautiful act of service that that is. I, some of the best advice I had ever gotten, I've ever received on marriage, centers around this thought. This individual was talking about how for the longest time when he would come home, and they have young kids, he'd come home and it was just World War Nine. I mean, it skipped three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It was just brutal. It was crazy. He was stressed out at work. He was tired. He was shot. Mama was tired. Mama was shot. The kids were ripping each other's hair out. It was crazy. And he'd walk into that and he'd bring all of his chaos from work and everything blew up. And then he had this thought. I thought it was some really great advice for us, very practical advice. He said he picked up this habit where he realized when he pulled home in the driveway that he sat in the driveway until he died a little. He pulled into the driveway, and he said he started having to think about this as he parked in the driveway of having to to get alone with the Lord, to decompress from work, to repent of his selfishness, repent of wanting to do things his way. So by the time he walked in the house, he was able to serve. He died a little. Husbands, I love that thought. Travis, I love that thought. Dave, I love that thought. That when we pull home, you say, you know what, I got to die a little bit before I go in there. I'm going to bring all my selfishness, all of me, into there, and i got to die a little to be there for them. What a, what a thought that is.
kick some baby bottles. Take that, baby bottles. Verse 31. And we've read this one a bunch in Genesis chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So ladies, just as last week when we talked about this idea of of submission to husbands, what that means, that that yielding of oneself to authority, that receiving care, the receiving nurturing from your husband, when you do that, you display to the world the gospel of Jesus. You display to the world that you trust him to care for you and provide for you. You you proclaim to the world that you trust him to lead you because he's your savior, because he's your king. And in the same way, husbands, when you die to yourself, when we realize that it's not about us, that it's not my kingdom, that I don't rule the roost, that everybody serves me, everyone's my serf, I would love that. When we realize that that's not true, and we willingly die to ourselves, and we walk in that door, and we say, I'm here for you. I choose you. You're mine. I don't need girls on the internet. I don't need girls at work. I don't need boats. I don't need jet skis. I don't need all the trappings of this world. I need you. You are my priority, and I care for you, and I lay my life down for you because it's not about me. It's all about you. When we do that, we proclaim the gospel of Jesus to our community. When they see us dying, they see the dying Savior sacrificing himself for his children. Husbands, when they see you say, this isn't about me, this is about them, they see Jesus leaving the throne and taking on flesh and dying for us. When they see you saying, husbands to your wives, say, this is, I want what's best for you. I want to I watch you flourish. I want to care for you and nurture you. They see you proclaim to the world that Jesus has my ultimate good in mind. That he is changing me. He is growing me. He, he just all about my, my betterment and giving me himself. That's what we show the world. In verse 33, I love that Paul writes in verse 32, he kind of says, okay, everything I've just said, I'm talking about Christ in the church, okay? That's all about Christ in the church. I was just giving you an image, giving you a metaphor. And then verse 33, I have to wonder if his scribe, when he was writing, was like, okay, Paul, that's great, but you've got to give him something practical. <laughs> Paul, give him something to hang your hat on, man. Verse 33, however... Here's the best marriage advice you'll ever get. I, I love this. Right here. One, one verse. They, they've sold volumes of marriage material. And Paul did it in a few words. However, let each one of you, speaking of men, love his wife as himself. There it is. Agape your wife. Choose your wife. Seek her betterment. And let the wife See that she respects her husband. And that ties into that idea of submission. That ties into that idea of yielding. That ties into that idea of receiving care from him. There it is. Marriage isn't about us. Marriage isn't about you. Marriage is all about him and proclaiming with our lives the glorious good news of Jesus. That's it. Would you pray with me? 
Uh, Father, God, we, again, we praise you for your word. We praise you for the truth that is in it, that makes sense of our reality, that, that inflicts us at times, that confronts us with your holiness and, and at times our sinfulness. Father, I pray that you would sanctify me, sanctify us, sanctify this little church through your word. Would we drink deep of the scriptures? Would we drink deep of the gospel of Jesus here in Cowtown, Vermont? And proclaim you to our neighbors, not just with our mouths, but with our very lives. Teach us to love our wives. Teach us to love our husbands. We love you. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.